my name is Taylor, and I am the founder and artistic director of Opera Cecilia. And my name is Tanis Gonzaga, yours truly, T, executive director of Opera Cecilia. And together we run the Savvy Soprano podcast, which is a podcast series basically about all things opera, both the salty and the unsalty, <laughs> the, the seasoned and not seasoned, as you will. Um, if you hear pitter patters of teeny tiny little feet in the background, that's because we have now three dogs running around our house because we don't know when to stop. Um, but, uh, we have three sweet pups. So if you hear them running around, it's kind of just like you're in our living room with us, I guess. So kind of fun. For those of you that have been following us on social media, we recently took a trip to New York because Taylor was part of a program that culminated in a performance in Carnegie Hall. Yeah, that was super fun. Um, it was definitely like a bucket list experience for me as a performer to get to be in such a historic venue. Um, I had an absolute blast just spending time in New York. Um, as you know, kind of from following us, if you do follow us, <laughs> we're from the Pacific Northwest. So so we're kind of from a different uh, part of the United States that has a really different vibe. So it is a cultural difference between here and New York City. But um, I love both where we live and New York for different reasons. Um, Tawny's got to come with me as my support system, which was absolutely wonderful. And we got to see some dear friends while we were there, too. And it was just like all around a good time. I sang uh, Musetta's Waltz from Puccini's La Boheme. And I sang... Um, a beautiful duet from Monteverdi's Coronation of Popea, and I did a little bit of ensemble work in a Don Giovanni scene. So overall, it was a super good time. Yeah, and one thing I didn't realize is that Carnegie Hall wasn't like a giant concert venue. It was actually a building that had multiple halls. Oh, yeah. I We didn't... I, I guess you kind of like... You see the Grand Hall like the big one where the full orchestras perform in a lot of the pictures. But you also see a lot of the recital hall that I performed in. I believe it's pronounced the Vile Recital Hall. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully I'm not wrong in that. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's it's named after Kurt Vile. I is, think, is it? I think, please, like uh, somebody talking. reach out and correct <laughs> us if we're wrong. It might be named after somebody else, but somebody um, in the building that worked for Carnegie pronounced it Wile Recital Hall. So like maybe we're completely off in that. Maybe that was just a assumption that we made. But um, yeah, I sang in the recital hall. Obviously, there's a couple different halls um, in there, a couple different performance spaces, but all of them are absolutely beautiful and opulent and all of them have had historic performers in them. So it was just such a rewarding experience. And the program that I was with was so unique and one of a kind uh, shout out to the Vincero Academy um, run by Abdil Vasquez um, for those fellow Vincero alumni who are listening. Um, I think they can attest as well to the fact that the program is super rewarding to be a part of. You get a huge bang for your buck in paying for a role study program. It's definitely not like a pay to sing because everybody has equal opportunities for performance. Everybody has an equal amount of master classes relative to the amount of roles that they are studying and you get to sing the entirety of the role for you know your your buddies in the program and to clarify this is this podcast is not 
sponsored by Vincito Academy. You just had a personal experience that was positive, so you wanted to give a shout-out. Yeah, out. so I just wanted to give a shout-out to Abdil. If they want to sponsor us, that's great. But <laughs> <laughs> we um, we won't spend too much more time on that, but that was the organization that I was a part of that led to that experience. So there's just a little insight there. There's definitely um, a, a, a wider idea behind that is there are like a plethora of different ways to receive your training as an artist these days, especially in like an endemic or like we're not really technically post COVID because COVID still very much exists and we want to continue to not ignore that fact but we're in a better state than we were before we're not complete quarantine in most parts of the world at least not in the states and so um but because of the pandemic I feel like a lot of things uh, a lot of alternative paths kind of open themselves up for singers. That's sort of the optimistic end. A lot of industry crud sort of showed itself too <laughs> that I've made plenty of salty social media posts about. But um, I also think that some very innovative ways to engage in your artistic training and improve in your craft as a singer have come out of the pandemic too, which is very cool. So according to wikipedia which is the absolute easiest way to find information <laughs> i need to like know more history behind carnegie hall the apparently. hall was actually named after persons joan and sanford i vile i want to say vile because in my experience it's like a german name is that correct typically it is which is why we i think um like kurt vile um, that makes sense that it was named after donors and patrons, of course. of course. But at the same time, I'm not entirely sure if we pronounce um, their name Wile or Vile. So um, it could go either way. So um, our apologies if we're pronouncing the name incorrectly. <laughs> uh, we made an assumption about it being named after an artist, I guess, that was kind of produced a lot of stuff in New York. But I'm sure he has other, Kurt Vile has other things named after him. So that was my own lack of education. It might actually be named Wile Hall, actually. So that might be on us. Cause, well, I mean, we thought it was Kurt Vile. And Kurt Vile is definitely pronounced with a V sound here for the American audience. It's funny because I'm such a history nerd when it comes to places like the Metropolitan Opera or like opera houses. But when it comes to concert halls, I am not very well versed in my history so i probably should have done a little bit more research out the bat but we all kind of know the weight artistically that the name carnegie hall carries with it right. and especially if you're an artist from the states but really around the world the venue is very well known and there's been a lot of it's really the legacy of the performers that have sung in that hall or played mm -hmm. in that hall that made me value and appreciate the experience of getting to sing there so much it kind of felt like you were a part of history in a way so it was extremely rewarding so what was your experience because i remember you mentioning a few things about how it went in carnegie hall backstage that maybe some things that surprised you could you give me a rehash of that again oh um the only thing that was kind of surprising 
it was both surprising and non-surprising at the same time is the fact that the venue is very strict. <laughs> and so they have like a very well-oiled machine of how they run things, which I completely respect. And they have to make sure that it's historically preserved too. But we had like our little backstage performer space that we hung out in. And that was the only place that we were allowed to be. We There was like a hall corridor near us that we could not cross over into. Um, if we went too far, we'd be encroaching on potentially another venue space within mm-hmm. the building. Um, they were very, very strict about that. They were very strict about how the, the amount of time we had for our dress rehearsal and when we were allowed to go out after the performance to see our loved ones and the other people who came uh. to support us, which was very interesting. Um, the whole entire concert, though, from beginning to end, between the way Vincero Academy handled it and the audience that showed up for our concert... Um, uh, including some very high up singers and coaches in the industry, everybody was so warm and wonderful and supportive. So it was so wonderful to see that um, in an industry that that can be kind of a mixed bag with sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of strictness, there's a lot of expectations in this industry, especially if you're performing really well known repertoire. Um, and I was performing a very like famous. <laughs> aria and but there was nothing but support and encouragement from both um my fellow singers in the program and the administrators and um audience members so it was just wonderful to have that opportunity what i found really weird uh personally is that they were such sticklers about recording inside the venues yeah well it makes sense because they want the venue to be presented professionally and they also want um, everything to be like put together in a certain way. So I kind of I understood and respected it, but at the same time, it wasn't as strict as they. <laughs> there were definitely people that broke the rules <laughs> a little I bit. Do, I I but... just straight up don't understand why there was such a big secrecy because none of the works that were performed, to my understanding, had any sort of copyright that yeah. couldn't be duplicated. It didn't have so anything. So I do didn't with understand <laughs> why people couldn't have their phones out and record their loved ones. Well, it didn't have anything to do with Vincero. It just had to do with the hall itself. And and I'm not talking about Vincero. I'm talking about the hall itself. For some reason, they had a policy of no recording. I don't know. I think it's just like a professional standard. I understand it because some people will like record with their or or take pictures with their flash on and stuff like that and it can be really distracting to the performers and so i think they just kind of like set a precedence as like a blanket rule for it but i don't know it's a little stricter than i would have it personally if i were running a venue like that but i don't know what do i know you know (laughs) i'm not in that profession i guess so i respect it um we we completely respect it at opera cecilia but it was interesting to see exactly how well oiled of a machine it really was and how yeah. particular it was um speaking of a well-oiled yeah. machine we ended up getting some rush tickets to a show called some like it hot that was performing off broadway wasn't it on broadway on broadway on broadway uh, it was on broadway very much on broadway <laughs> okay well I- i'm not versed in that particular sphere but i wanted to go see a show in New York, the strip of theaters, which there's tons of. I had no idea. I thought it was just like maybe 20, but... Full disclosure, this was Tanisa's first time in New York. Yes, in case I, <laughs> that didn't come across. But I wanted to go see a show that I had not seen before. So Phantom of the Opera did not call my attention. I was not interested in 
what what were some of the other ones that you were posing for us? Uh, well, there was like Phantom of the Opera, Wicked. Um, uh, I wanted to see Hades Town, which I still think would have been really great to see. And I was down for seeing that, but that yeah. unfortunately just wasn't in our budget. Way too much money for the last minute tickets. Yeah, so. and that but the show... advance tickets are more expensive. So if you want to do Broadway right, go for like last minute rush because you can get them for like twenty to forty bucks a piece. And there was this one website that we actually found it on. What was it? Today ticks was no, the one that I was using. It, I, it was not oh, today. Oh no, it was it Broadway was for broke people. Broadway for broke people, <laughs> not a sponsor. But if you're yeah. broke like us, <laughs> no, that's just like that's not even like sponsorable stuff. That's just like how to navigate the city if you're an artist or an arts lover and you want to engage mm-hmm. in that stuff. But um, but anyway, we just kind of like meandered the streets of Broadway and went into various theaters to see what was still offering rush tickets some theaters don't offer rush too so yeah. we had to like figure that's out what we ran were. into with hadestown wasn't it yeah they didn't offer rush no it was with six and you could do same day tickets but they were like 140 a piece they were really expensive to like purchase last minute so we were like for no. us at least um at least for us yeah and but then there was um some like it hot box office was open. We went in there and they were like, Oh, we still have orchestra level seats for like 40 bucks a piece. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, heck yeah, we're going to take that opportunity. Yep. So we jumped so. in there and we saw some really great performers. Oh my gosh. It was so much fun. It was great. Everyone was like top tier. They were great dancers, great actors. It, I mean, it was a very different style from the film style that we dip into. Yeah. Um, but it was still very well done, and the timing was spot on. The, the pacing of the entire show, I was just completely blown away. Well, it was so such a well-written show. It was such a powerful and uplifting message. I loved how it preached, to a certain extent, that idea of like acceptance of everybody and letting everyone live their life fully and authentically the way that they were meant to or the way that feels natural to them. But it was it didn't come off as preachy. It had a, the show had a very clear message behind it, but it handled the thematic material so well that it just felt like human stories that were being told. It didn't feel like it was ever in your face or anything like that. It didn't feel over the top. It was just so it was it was a wonderful diversity of characters that were portrayed in such a natural and beautiful way. It was so much fun to watch. It was so uplifting. And I just felt so much joy. I mean, you're really picky about shows. And I have not seen you shoot up that fast for a standing O in a really long time. So shout out to Some Like It Hot. If you have the chance to see it on Broadway, do not hesitate to go see it. People should prioritize that show. Yes, it's fantastic. And you also managed to dip and see a Mm -hmm. a show at the Met. You saw an opera at the Met. So tell me about that. Uh, to be completely transparent about my relationship with the Metropolitan Opera. It's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. I was not super, full disclosure, super happy with the way they treated their artists during the pandemic. And um, I've competed for the Met competition a few times. And overall, that was a good um, experience. I haven't won or advanced or placed or anything. That, that, But I know those competitions are hard to do that in. So... I know I'm not the only one, um, maybe someday, but, um, I, I do, I did have some issues with, uh, with the way they treated their artists during the pandemic. And so I had mixed feelings about the house and stuff, but the Met is the Met and it's a beautiful cultural landmark. And I think that just like every really, really big organization, it has its good and it's bad. 
You know, you could say the same thing about big corporations that a lot of us have emotional attachments to, like Disney, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Disney has its good things and it's like not so great right things because it's may, just big there may be know? issues administratively with how yeah something is handled but the good thing about that is that administratively mm -hmm. things change administratively like you have people that come in and take new leadership new ownership they take something in a different direction and mm -hmm. we, i think it's safe to say that a lot of people out there including myself would like to see the met do things more differently yeah i'm not the biggest uh peter gelb fan the person who is currently kind of running the show over there pew, pew, shots fired. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> it's just my opinion i mean all due respect i respect everybody in this industry but that doesn't necessarily mean that i have to agree with their ways right. of doing things you know what i mean and i think at the end of the day i would have to say that you can still find a lot of great singing at the Met. Oh, of course you can. And I that's mean, primarily why we want to go. Yeah. And so my friend and I got the opportunity to see Elixir of Love. We sat up in the quote unquote, it's called the family circle section. <laughs> Which is, I honestly, I don't know why exactly they call it that, other than the fact that I think it's where people like with kids go. I that's the best thing people that take I can. Kids to the Met I opera? don't know. Well, there's I mean, some, I want to see that. There's but... some interactive shows, like they did an interactive production of Magic Flute that I guess was like an all ages like kids type thing, and so they do do some of that. But I don't know why it's called Family Circle. If anybody knows why that section, the upper balcony, the the uppermost balcony of the Met is called the Family Circle, please let me know. <laughs> Tell me. Somebody reach out to us. DM us at Opera Cecilia or something. Um, but anyway, that's where we sat. We got the cheapo tickets, but we did not. I loved the fact that they had personalized subtitles according to somebody's language in your own seat that's really cool that's, that's a great update very very cool um so i really enjoyed that it was nice to not have the subtitles right above the show on the stage because sometimes that can get a wee bit distracting for me i actually mm -hmm. liked the model of them being in the seats mm. that being said not every company can afford that so i'm fine with them being on the stage but if i get the option between the two it's nice to have um, the little screen one. So you can occasion you can look down at it, but then when text is repeated, you don't see it pop up over and over and you can focus more on what's happening on stage. Um, I like that. Uh, and this production of Elixir of Love was very well directed, very well sung, and it just was so entertaining. It was so funny. The way they did it really highlighted the humor in the plot. Um, for those of you who don't know a lot about Elixir of Love, I encourage you to look up the plot. It's basically, you know, about this guy who gets sold. <laughs> he gets kind of duped and he's, yeah. he gets sold alcohol that is being, you know, so basically, masqueraded as a love potion. He gets taken by the power of placebo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he gets taken by the power of um, a little bit too much to drink is oh. what he gets taken by. And um, the power of spirits. And uh, he, it's this whole entire like relation, uh, very, very comical romance between Nemorino and Adina. And it's just so well highlighted in that production. So that was so much fun to watch. It looked like the performers were genuinely having so much fun on stage. Yeah. And I think that, and I felt that in Some Like It Hot too. When performers look like they love the crap out of what they're doing, it is so fun to watch. Yeah. It makes the show so much more wonderful and um 
And that just goes to show like that it, 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 I honestly think that when performers really look like they're genuinely enjoying themselves, that's a, that's, that's a reflection on the crew as well. And the overall dynamic of the production, Mm -hmm. you know, either they're extremely convincing and good at faking it or the dynamics of that production was wonderful during the rehearsal process and everyone got along really well and everyone felt like they were well taken care of and that reflected in the performances they gave on stage and would you say that growing up that was your understanding or your belief of how it was backstage and what it meant to be a performer It definitely was. That's what I wanted to believe. I think when I was younger and I got into college and I went to some pay to sing yaps when I was an undergrad and I was like just starting out and stuff like that, I found that that was not always the case and that there's definitely toxicity in this art form too. And there's, it's a really mixed bag depending on the people you work with. But I do want to believe and I have come to find that the majority of the people that you'll interact with in this industry are wonderful, very well-meaning people. Are there people that are out there for themselves or that are catty and mean and act dumb for (laughs) selfish gain? Of course there are, but, um, and I will forever be salty about people at the administrative level that use those traits to take advantage of young artists, but or anybody at the emerging level, whether you're young or not. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I do think that most people out there are just trying to do their best and survive in the industry that we've created and hopefully make it better. Do you think there's... Uh, because I've heard that there's a level of self-sacrifice that artists somehow are pushed into or they feel like are a part of the gig as they mature and grow into knowing more parts of this opera industry um i think it is preached at the absolute from the absolute beginning of a young singer's journey to well into their professional career that there's a level of self-sacrifice that comes with this job it's this idea of self-sacrifice this idea of oh there are things that you're gonna have to give up give up or come to terms with or time in your life that you're gonna have to give up if you really want to be successful at this craft i mean i believe i got this information from you because i don't follow people in the opera sphere as closely as you do but Mm -hmm. it's my understanding that the soprano lizette oropesa said in some interview or at some point in time that she decided that she wasn't going to have children for the sake of this art form because she wanted to give it her all? No, she just kind of like felt like she didn't really have room for both. And so she chose which um, for her own life made the most sense. And that is not something that we bring up judgmentally because I think the decision to not have kids is a very legitimate one that people have a right to make. And if you don't want to have kids, you don't want to have kids and that is 100% okay. And that's what you choose. And if that's the life that makes you happy, then you have every right to pursue that. Right. I think the concern that I have for that particular decision is not the decision itself, but potentially the context around that decision being yeah. For, for example, if she felt like she didn't really have a choice, like she had to pick one or the other, mm-hmm. I think that's more indicative of the 
industry and how it's laid out. I mean, that's sort of the way, that's sort of what the article insinuated. I'm not entirely sure if that's what she meant or if there was more context. Sometimes articles are like abridged. Oh yeah, Um, of course. But at the same time, um, it does bring up an interesting point, like how... Like, she is a very, very, very skilled singer and extremely professional and very good at what she does and has gone very far. Yes, very She's one of the most well-known sopranos. She's wonderful to emerging artists for the, you know, like so many wonderful things happening. And so if that was what she wanted to wholeheartedly dedicate her life to and that's what she freely chose then that's wonderful and it's a worthy Mm -hmm. ambition. Um, That's how she chose to live her life. That being said, there are other performers out there that have chosen to have a family and do this art form as well that have also gone to those prestigious places and proven that you can have both if that's the life you want to live too. It just really depends on what people want for themselves. But what I don't like in this industry, which is I think what we're kind of getting at with this podcast episode, is the fact that so many people are made to feel like they can't have both. Right. Are made to feel like it has to be one over the other, that there's no support system for them to do more than one thing or pursue multiple things in their life, whether it be having a family and being a professional performer, whether it be being a professional performer, but also pursuing something else in your career, you know, being a multifaceted artist. I feel like there's this weird stigma too coming from that stupid phrase that I hope I never hear uttered from anybody in the professional world again, that those who can't do teach. Hmm. I think that is the stupidest thing anyone's ever said. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that that warrants its own um, yeah. episode or handful of episodes on its own. Oh, for but sure. But before we move on and talk more about that, I want to say that we personally had an experience where in our undergrad degree, we were both um, applying for grad school at the time and mm-hmm. we had just started dating. Um, but... There was, I think there was a professional baritone that was brought in for one of our yeah. Music at Midweek concerts. And we got, we got a chance to talk to him as a class. And one of the things that he basically said unprompted was to not get married. Yeah. Because when he you like get married, straight up said that. you like end up having blank. kids and then you stop doing he, the he opera kind stuff. of said if you remember this i don't know if you remember this and i don't know if this this can't be a direct quote because this was years ago but i vividly remember him saying something along the lines of you can't don't get married don't settle down because you'll get too happy mm. and then you'll get complacent like somehow happiness and contentment breeds complacency. Maybe it does in some people because they're genuinely okay with coasting. They've gotten to the place in life they want to be and they're fine just staying there for a while, right. you know? But just because you get married or you have kids does not mean that you don't have drive in you. Right. And just because you become a mom or a dad or a parent of some kind or because you decide to have a significant other or a partner whether it's a marriage or just a really serious relationship you know that does not mean that you cannot be dedicated to your craft that you cannot be a driven and determined person and I was so mad because people kept saying this to me like over and over again especially after we got engaged I mean granted we got engaged pretty young we got engaged at 23 
Um, and some people consider that really young. Mm-hmm. We felt like it was the perfect time for us and we stand by that and I'm so glad we did it. Yeah. But for a lot of other people, my parents straight up were like, and I love my parents and they've always been super supportive of what I choose. But like my parents were straight up like, you're going to get married and then you're going to have kids and your life is going to be over. <laughs> sort of what I mean, did. from the beginning, your parents have always <laughs> been of the opinion that once you have kids, life stops. I, that's kind of what it felt like. Um, and I'm sure that that's not entirely like the whole picture of their opinion. Um, and I, we've had more in-depth conversations since then. But at the time, I was just like, just because I want to be a wife and mother does not mean that I can't also be a successful career woman. Does it mean that every once in a while my family is going to have to be prioritized over my career because they're the people in my life I'm responsible for? Yes. Yes, and I believe... We should be doing that. I think there's still a subset of the population that feels like you need to go gung-ho towards your career. But that's, in my opinion, that's the exact kind of thought process that kept labor unions from forming and coming together. It's very pro-company or pro-corporation to think that way. Yeah. And it's very like it like in the sense that oh, you have to work overtime and you have to be available on weekends and yeah. yes, people do get ahead that way, but they do it at a price that they Well, it creates this invisible work uh, this invisible rule book. There's like this invisible rule book around a career in the arts. And this happens not just in the arts, it happens in other businesses too. But there's this invisible rule book that says you have to do X, Y, and Z, think like this, act like this, wear this thing, sing this repertoire. You have to have a package, an ARIA package that looks exactly like this. All of this BS. And you have, if you follow the rules perfectly, you're basically guaranteed a professional career. And that's kind of how it's preached it at the conservatory university level. Right. At least that's sort of how it was presented to me at times. And I've come to find that, first of all, none of it guarantees you crap. Right. <laughs> There's that. You could still do all the right things, dot all the right I's, cross all the right T's, and not have a successful career. Not get into anything. Yeah. By no fault of your own, just because everything's a giant crapshoot and you were not taught entrepreneurial skills. And so you didn't know how much of a self-starter you may have had to be to do some of the things you wanted to do. I Um, think that's because a big component of this is just the education system in the States. Yeah. They, it was created at a time when manufacturing jobs were the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And you were taught how to be a part of a system and you were taught a very linear path. The yeah. whole the whole system in the United States educational system is about following a path. It was kind of preached to us from a very, very young age. And this happens in other countries too, not just in our country. But it was preached from a very young age for us that life, the rest of life, if we did everything correctly, would kind of be like grade school. We would just continue to move a grade up. We would continue to level up if we did these things and pleased the right people. We would stay in the system and the system would benefit us. 
And we're coming to find, especially post the worst part of COVID-19, that the system doesn't benefit us as much as it says it's going to, even if we do make all the right moves in their eyes. Right. And so for us, I think the entire existence of Opera Cecilia in general revolves around the fact that we sort of have to, especially in the arts world, demand the life we want. And yeah. nobody else is fully going to advocate for us except ourselves. And there's a freedom and an empowerment in that that's beautiful, but there's also scariness to that. And I truly do not think it means you have to be like an entrepreneur and start your own business. Mm-hmm. I just posted this thing on Opera Cecilia that you recommended I post. So you were a part of that. Um, that said, it's okay if you don't want to be an entrepreneur. We love you too. Right. Because not everyone's built that way. Not everyone wants to have to think about these things constantly. Not everybody wants that kind of lifestyle. And that's completely fine. just want to go to work, get their paycheck, and they deserve to be happy too. And there should be an environment in the arts for both kinds of artists. Mm -hmm. The movers and the shakers and the innovators and those who take the current industry and make it better because of their presence in it. Um, That being said, what's difficult right now in the current landscape of the industry, at least in the States, it's different depending on the country you live in. Um, So my international friends, uh, feel free to give us feedback on what it's like in the arts world in your country. But for the U.S., it kind of is a gig economy. So it feels like it's inevitable that you have to be an entrepreneur no matter what you do. Yeah. There has to be some entrepreneurial element to it, or you will have a very hard time making enough money to survive in this industry because we virtually do not have an industry in the States where singers can just perform for in-state companies Mm -hmm. or just perform within their own home state and sustain a career just off of performance. We don't have a troop system at opera companies in the States anymore. No. And if we do have a troop system, it's like for very small grassroots type things that can't always pay a living wage to their artists right away. I mean, we're not even paying our artists as much as we want to right now because yeah. we're not making as much as we want to right now. So we're literally doing everything we possibly can, but it this company's growth is just going to take time and we've accepted that. Yeah, if you want to help us on that journey, please hop on over to operacecilia.com we have a tab on there that you can support us you can do direct donation set it up as a recurring donation through Mm -hmm. patreon or do just send it to us as a one-time donation as much as you would like go to our merch store in that same tab we have a number of products we just got um the proof for our mug Mm -hmm. which you really love it's great it's double facing it's got one of our logos on one side one on the other so cozy up with a cup of tea in our opera cecilia mug yeah um the opera lovers playbook is now live so you can find that on our website as a printable or go to amazon.com and look it up and toward the end of this podcast i'm going to elaborate more on exactly what that is let's do that right now um the opera lovers playbook is 
a way that we're kind of being innovative and entrepreneurial as a company. It's um, kind of a baby that we birthed creatively between the two of us, but we also had a fantastic collaborator on it that I wanted to shout out. Her name is Christina Kent. She runs Mindful Sound Studio. Many people in the opera community on Instagram have shared her posts or seen her posts at one time or another. She posts wonderful words of wisdom for opera singers, debunking a lot of the toxic aspects of being in this art form and just basically saying that you can create your own rule book and you can really do this art form your way that makes you the most happiest in your life. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what the Opera Lovers Playbook is all about. It's not just for emerging opera singers. It's for everybody who loves to engage with the art form. So just fans of opera would really enjoy this book too, but it is really geared toward... um, We have a special place in our heart for emerging singers, so it is kind of geared largely toward that demographic and what it is is it's basically a book for the in-betweens it's a book for those anxious moments where we're doing all the logistical stuff that it takes to have a career in this industry we're waiting on audition results we're on a plane to a gig we're just we're in the grind in between and sometimes that grind can be super stressful and so this is sort of a mental health tool for singers it's um something that has fun crossword puzzles word searches journal prompts thanks to our wonderful friend christina and um it even has personality quizzes we wrote ourselves and really really fun stuff so that you can put the playfulness back into what we do because if we don't enjoy this, then why are we doing it? Why are we enduring right. all the stupid stuff, all the BS in this industry if we don't absolutely love what we do? Right. I, I think what this book is, it's a great addition to your anxiety coping mechanisms. And, and I think on a subconscious level, you created something that would have helped you out a lot backstage. Yeah. Because sometimes you just need something to doodle on to get your mind off of what is happening in the frustrating parts of this industry. Sometimes you need to journal out something. Sometimes you need to remind yourself, write down a reminder of why you love this. Yeah. And I I think um, we want to keep creating these. Um, So there's two versions out right now. There's the Woodland Edition and then there's the Garden Edition. They're both beautiful and they have the same exact thing going on. It's just an aesthetic difference. So we encourage you to go on over, get yourself a copy, support us here at Opera Cecilia as we support emerging artists. Yeah, and the nature aesthetic comes from the fact that we as a company are, um, the founders of this company are nature lovers. We're from a part of the world that's very beautiful naturally. And um, nature holds a special place in our heart because it serves as the backdrop for our filmed productions. And so it's a free set. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not just about that. It's also about just grounding ourselves in the earth and Mm -hmm. that being a part of the the artistry that we create as a company. And it sort of brings a wholesomeness back into the art form. It removes some of the elitism and it's calming, you know. So there's a lot of different reasons why nature is incorporated into our brand and uh, the aesthetic of this book. And so overall, this is just meant to calm and it's meant to help. Um, soothe 
the parts of this career or soothe your mind during the parts of this career where it can get really stressful and overwhelming because I've been there, done that. I am diagnosed generalized anxiety disorder. I've had mental health issues my entire life. And so this book would have been a godsend to me, especially during my college years. And so I hope that it is a helpful tool for everyone who considers purchasing. Yeah, and I think along those lines, those experiences that you had in undergrad and continue to have on occasion, um, our next project that we're going to be having is Love Letters to Arias I Fear, which is coming out sometime in late February is our hope. Um, Give me a rundown on the concept you have for that because we haven't talked in depth about this, but I feel like you have a lot of... uh, opinions and desires about how this project should turn out it's cool because um at the beginning we were sort of of this podcast episode we were sort of talking about the topic of self-sacrifice and for me love letters to the arias i fear is addressing all of the things that prevented me from fully expressing myself as the artist i wanted to be earlier that stunted me for a while and even prevented my vocal technique progress for a while. Because, and this is something I always emphasize with my students in my private studio too, singing is brain training. There is so much about our field our art form that is so deeply psychological. There's so much about the act of singing that is deeply psychological. And if that is not addressed in the studio, in college degree programs, in um, in life in general, if mental health is not addressed, then we have such a huge barrier to our success. And that's kind of where this project was birthed from, was debunking some of these myths that are told to young artists early on in their careers that were told to me, that limited me and stunted me. They didn't motivate me. They didn't just tell me a harsh truth because they don't have to be true for you. You know, Mm -hmm. and so I actually have a series of prompts. We've been systematically on the Opera Cecilia Instagram page announcing which arias I'm using for love letters to the arias I fear. The way that the art film will be formatted is it has five iconic arias from the lyric soprano canon. Um, which is the type of repertoire that I sing. Um, Five very famous pieces um, that have a lot of expectations on them Mm -hmm. when performers sing them. Some, and they're all arias that I've been afraid of singing because of those expectations. Hence, arias you fear. Yes. Tell (laughs) me about the love letter part though. That's my own original poetry. It's a love letter to myself as an artist Um, it's me being able to indulge in the pride of how far I've come, but it's also me not shying away from the painful parts of pursuing this art form and being in this industry and the things that have, like I said before, stunted my growth, both physically and emotionally as a singer. And, um, it is also a love letter to these arias because at the end of the day, I ardently love this music. Mm -hmm. I love it so much. And I think it was kind of like, you know how you were like, you can love something too much or hold it too close or get too perfectionistic about it to the point where it's like a little baby bird. And if you if you're not gentle with it in your hands, you can kind of hurt it on accident, you know, Um, full disclosure. When I was a little kid, a very big example of this, that's very metaphorically poignant to this point is um, when I was like one and a half, two years old, we had two pet goldfish. Um, Their names were Chloe and Cleo. Poor Chloe was like 
two-year-old me's favorite fish. And I loved the crap out of that fish. And one time my mom took the fish tank down to clean it and give them like fresh water and stuff. And I decided that I was going to reach my little hand into the tank and take out Chloe because I wanted to give her a hug. Um, And as a result of giving her a hug, I accidentally, as you can imagine, killed the fish. And two-year-old little me did not know any better, did not have bad intentions with that interaction, of course. But it, I was so sad. Like, it was it was devastating for me as a kid. And it's something that's kind of anecdotally brought up as this metaphor now in my life where it's like, obviously, I've forgiven myself for that now, <laughs> um, years later, even though that was a very devastating thing for me. Because two-year-old me didn't know any better. But at the same time... It just kind of goes to show that if you like, if you hold something so close and you obsess over it so much, sometimes you can hold it too tight and you can prevent yourself from even engaging with it at all. Mm -hmm. Or you can prevent yourself from, or you can almost destroy it for yourself in a way because it's just too much. If you hold it too preciously. Yeah. And um, I hope that metaphor makes sense. But like I I just revealed that I accidentally killed a fish when I was two. But like. Another way of phrasing it might be (laughs) if you love something, set it free. Yeah. There's this level of freedom that comes with love. And everybody says that if you, if you love someone, set it free. But it's also if you love something, mm-hmm. set it free. If you love this art form, allow your art form to show itself for all of its imperfections. Don't hold so close to it and be so afraid of showing it that you just never let it reveal itself to the world because then it's just going to be a giant secret your entire life. And that's kind of what Love Letters to the Arias I Fear is all about, is me showing who I truly want to be as an artist to the world for the first time in hopes of inspiring others to do the same. Um, And the love letters come in the form of original poetry that I write that are kind of interweaved with the Arias. Mm -hmm. There's um, five chapters to this, short chapters to this art film, and each of them feature an aria and a poem. And um, chapter one is going to be Chi Bel Sogno from Puccini's La Rondine. Um, and it meditates on the idea of, on the phrase, I am worthy of taking up space. And I kind of discuss what it's like to feel the weight of the legacy of all these great performers as a singer and how intimidating that used to be to me and how yeah. I felt like I would never be able to sing this music perfectly. And um, a little quote from the parts of the poetry I've written so far are, I am worthy of taking up space. My art is space and time. My art is history. I reach into my soul and pull out music that served as a battle cry to my ancestors. I am worthy of the legacy. With me, this art takes one more breath. And because of me, this art touches one more soul. Mm-hmm. Chapter two is Quando um, Menvo from Puccini's La Boheme, which I just sang in Carnegie Hall. Um, and the concept is my sensuality is my own. My sensuality as a person is something that I used to be very afraid of showing 
for a variety of reasons, very shy about. Mm -hmm. But the excerpt of my poetry from that is, I am more than the gaze of one who never has lived a moment in my body, who has never seen with these eyes, kissed with these lips, or held another in these arms. My power comes with several dimensions. It is in my complexity that one will find my sensuality, for there will always be something new to discover, qualities that are not special because they are untouched, but instead because of the power they have to touch others a power wielded by none but me so that's a little bit of a sneak peek into what you may can expect with love letters to aria's i fear so mm-hmm. please follow us so you can get some tickets for that and yeah. support us. Tickets are available via Eventbrite. Um, our Eventbrite portal link is um, in the uh, bio of our Instagram page. It's also going to be on our website. Um, but if you search us up in Eventbrite on the website as well, you'll be able to find us if you search the name of our event. Um, tickets are donation-based. Um, the suggested donation is $5, but you can donate anything as low as just a little bit over $1 like a dollar and three cents I think is their minimum and um, it's all money that goes towards supporting the future of Opera Cecilia so you're supporting mm-hmm. the arts in the process supporting our little company and we're hoping it's something that inspires you there was another thought bubble that we've been talking about actually recently um, that ties in very well to the idea of if you love something set it free and the the full quote, I believe, is, if you love something, set it free. If it returns, it's yours. And if not, it never was. And what we've kind of been thinking about is the quote of, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about your thoughts of... What you thought that meant? I used to think when I was younger that if it's meant to be, it will happen. Meant that if everything isn't easy in the process of getting it, if everything doesn't just land in my lap, then I wasn't meant to have that thing. And that's kind of what the phrase can imply sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like if it's meant to be, it will feel like it's meant to be. Things will just fall into place. Right. But what that phrase sometimes, what people neglect to address when it comes to the concept of if it's meant to be, it will happen, is that the meant to be part isn't going to come without struggle. And that everything in this life that is worth achieving, I truly believe, at least everything that's been worth achieving in my life has come with challenges Mm -hmm. and unbelievable obstacles that I have to conquer. And... Getting to the other side of it feels so wonderful, even if there was that challenge. Sometimes it feels more wonderful for that challenge, depending on the thing. And so I used to think there's been times in my career where I had a particularly hard bout with audition rejections. Or um, when I first applied for grad schools, I didn't get accepted into any of them. Mm -hmm. And that was really rough. You know, it took me two tries to get a good offer to grad school, but I did get one eventually. And the thing is, I 
in those moments, I was like, if this isn't landing in my lap, if I'm not getting these things that I'm getting going out for, does that mean that I'm not meant to be a singer? I'm not meant to be an artist when I feel like there's nothing else I can do that gives me a more personal sense of like authentically expressing myself. Why can I not imagine myself doing anything else other than this? But it's still so damn hard. Am Am I missing something? Is there some other thing I'm supposed to do? And if I did that thing, would everything be easy? And the truth is nothing's going to be easy ever. And um, so it's not necessarily if it's meant to be, it will land in your lap. It's if it's meant to be, you will never lose the drive and the insatiable desire at the end of the day, when all is said and done, to keep pursuing it. Even if you have moments of dropped motivation or disappointment or needing to take a break, we're not talking about that. We're talking about like, if you just low-key hate it, (laughs) (laughs) then maybe it's not meant to be and it won't happen. But if you still have that wonderful, insatiable desire and hunger to be a part of this art form, then it was meant for you on some level or another. Maybe you won't be the next Renee Fleming or Luciano Pavarotti, but we need other types of artists in this world besides just that. We need innovators. We need people who support smaller companies. We need art to go to demographics that don't typically get as much access to it. We don't just need the next big celebrity singer. It's great if that's what you become and you have a remarkable amount of power and influence that I hope you use for good. Yeah. <laughs> but and it's fantastic if that's the life that you choose and that you're really happy with. And if that's what was meant for you, great. But this art form, if you have an insatiable desire for it, is meant for you. Mm-hmm. Because that's not something that can be kicked. And that's the thing that's going to keep you going at the end of the day. This deep love for it. And that's another reason why this company is exists is existing is to help other artists never lose that no matter how annoying things can get. Trying to pursue this art form and make a living doing it so you can do it all the time. Mm-hmm. The only reason that I'm concerned with making a living engaging in this art form is not because I want it to be some get rich quick scheme. This is not the industry to get into to get rich quick. I will no. tell you that not at all. It's because I want to I want to make a living doing this and a comfortable one because I want to be able to do this all the time. Because that's how much I I love it. That's the dream. You know? And I feel like we have the capacity to change lives doing it because art has proven to be one of the most politically, humanistically influential things in the world. Yeah. People are persuaded to vote for candidates because their favorite celebrity singer voted for them. That's how influential you can be as an artist. Whether I think there's a lot of layers to that, whether I think that's healthy (laughs) or not, but that's just how our society is. So we're incredibly powerful in what we do in the world. But we're consistently, especially at the emerging artist level, disempowered for doing it Mm -hmm. in the way our current industry is set up or we're preyed upon for the higher ups to earn more money. But we can bring opera back to wider audiences again by presenting it in new and innovative ways. And if you've been told, um, I've had a student that I recently was talking to that straight up has been told not to sing from people or that she doesn't sound good. She's a wonderful singer. (laughs) And she just had, her, her family just has different aesthetic tastes than her. And because it's not what, in their opinion, is their favorite type of singing, they think it's not good. 
So she's been shamed for the voice she authentically has. That's not fair. No. And if you've ever experienced that, please know that that does not mean that this art form is not meant for you. It just means that you haven't found the right audience that will appreciate you. And an audience has to be right for you just as much as you have to be right for that audience. It's not just about them. Yeah. It's about you too. And sometimes you just haven't found the right demographic, but that doesn't mean there isn't a following out there for you. I've seen a lot of real weird things gain a following in this world. So (laughs) your singing can be one of them. There's literally a girl who sells farts in a jar and makes money off of that. If you, if fart in a jar lady can make money, then you can off of your beautiful singing voice. So you can do this. On that note, folks. (laughs) Wow. That was not what I expected to say in a podcast ever, but whatever. We're, this is where we're at. Keep singing and keep (laughs) listening to us. We'll bring you little tidbits of wisdom and we'll have some fun along the way. Hopefully. <laughs> Ooh, uncensored Taylor came out there for a second, but it's fine. <laughs> so until next time. Yep. Until next time, uh, we hope to see you around here again. We hope you continue to support OC. And thank you for everything you're doing for us. We love you all and have a wonderful rest of your day. Bye.